Welcome to our Nerd Stairwells uh, movie podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm joined by Neve. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Do you have to stop yourself from laughing? Um, the you best good? Part is the best part is that's not going to make it in the episode. So none of that's going in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> not one second of that is going in the episode. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Neve. <laughs> uh, we're here to talk about Tokyo Drifter, but first, did you watch any other movies this week? Um, I watched two movies, but we're probably not going to talk about them. 
Um, no. I watched the I watched the last two um, rebuild of Evangelion movies, or if you're nasty like me, the Evangelion Shingeki Joban Q and the Kappa. Um, but you have not watched, I think, either of them yet. So, um, I figure no. we can just save it. You'll, my guess is you'll probably have watched it by next week. Probably. Pro prop probably. We'll see. If are you planning to watch the other two? <laughs> yes, I am intending okay. to watch the other two. The issue is that um uh like I have remained very busy at work and um the sort of like Evangelion posting fever has died down online. To where now the 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 sort of desire to to pursue Evangelion has to come from within inside of me, uh, and the passion's just died down. It's not gone, yeah, by any means. It's just chilled out a little bit. Um, I'm kind of surprised by how much of a flash in the pan like discussion about these movies were, um, but. I felt like when the show hit Netflix, everyone was talking about Ava for six weeks. Yeah. Like, like I felt like when the show hit Netflix, it dominated, like, online for a lot longer than this last movie coming out did. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you want me to do my, like, my quick, quick and dirty... Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't like them. <laughs> I didn't like either of them. <laughs> we'll talk about them more, but I didn't like either of them. There are parts of the the fourth one, um, De Capo, that I enjoyed, but um, overall, I didn't. I didn't like them. I've seen people being like, "This is the the end that we needed for End of Evangelion." That's like hopeful and and not the terrible movie End of Evangelion. And to those people, I say, please just read the manga. <laughs> um, I I also made me think that the show provides you, like, a a good ending. Where yeah, it's the show like, ends well. The, the, I, the, I like it. It's sad, but it's, like, there's hope, you know? And, yeah. like, I think the show strikes a good balance between the, like... There is in that ending the utter hopelessness that you can sort of see in End of Ava, but I think that the show is like looking forward toward the future a little more. Um, yeah. Um, now I have to put in an Evangelion spoiler warning again. Shit. <laughs> Fuck. But, and so like the manga, so the weird thing about the manga is I would not recommend anyone just read the manga. I feel like reading the end of the manga after you've like watched the show and also the movie End of Evangelion and possibly even after watching the the like rebuild movies and then reading the manga is like going to give you the greatest satisfaction. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um But yeah, we'll talk about it more later, I'm sure. That's the other thing is that also <sighs> When Evangelion Posting Fever was at, like, at its height, I got this idea in my head, and I was quickly, I quickly discarded it, because I was like, I just need to, like, get through this, like, 
everyone's talking about the new thing. I want to see the new thing. But I got this idea in my head that I was like, it's been two years since I've seen the show, and I think I would feel differently about it now. And um, I think I would be more normal about End of Evangelion, even if I still hate it now. Um, And, you know, like, I just... I got it in my. I was like, I want to. I want to read the manga because I know uh, Nia loves it so much, and I just got it in my head. I was like, I could just really commit to just like doing Ava shit for like the next three months of my life, you know? Yeah. Um, and I quickly discarded that thought at first, but now that no one's posting about Ava anymore, like the thoughts creeped back in my head. I'm like, well, now that there's no sense of urgency about it, I could do that. It's a bad idea. It's going to make me not like Ava if I do that. I know that, you know? Yeah. I know that, like, I have a kind of low tolerance for this, and that if I overdo it, I'm just going to be upset. <laughs> but the thought is in my head. Um, If you or a dear listener does want to go revisit both the anime, uh, the manga, and also the movie End of Evangelion... Uh, there is actually a great podcast that you can listen to that uh, will like really help you frame and contextualize stuff as you're going through it. Um, it's called I thought, Ghost Divers. I thought Waypoint I th- Radio I th- was okay, but I, you know, I didn't... <laughs> um, it's called Ghost Divers. It's on this little known network called the Export Audio Network. Um, <laughs> Exportaudio.io/slash/ghostdivers. Um, anyway, um... that's my little plug. Listen to my podcast. It's good. I'm. You're you listening to one I'm of my other right podcasts. Now? It's also good. <laughs> I'm literally listening to your podcast right now. Um. um do we, Do we want to just talk about Tokyo Drifter? I watched movies. Oh, you watched movies. <laughs> I watched I, two movies. You watched two. I didn't know that you watched movies. I watched two movies. I didn't know that you ever in your life watched movies. Shut the fuck up. Be nice to me for once. Oh yeah, you did actually watch that. I I do remember you watching a movie. Um, so one of the movies I watched, uh, The Green Knight. Um, uh, Nora and I watched it on I think Saturday, which was um, let's see, five days ago. Um, I don't remember that movie at all. Even a little bit. Totally. Just gone from my memory. Like. (laughs) And I know that some of this is because of like. Work. But. Oh my word. I don't remember that movie. Even a little bit. (laughs) Um, You you remember that I was in it. You were in that movie. (laughs) Um, Did you watch that movie? No I haven't. I just know that there's a fox in it. (laughs) Okay. Is it is it in the trailers or you just found that out? Um, I know whenever a fox is in anything. Okay, that's fair. I um, there's a bit where the the fox talks, and I would literally just I I liked that movie. I don't want I don't want people to get the impression that I disliked that movie. I liked that movie, but also it made zero impression on me. Um, and um. I, uh, 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 there's a bit where the fox talks, and I did just have a moment of like, I wish it was saying KS Reigns right now. 
I never thought I would be all feel like shit just wander back about Lars von Trier, but there I was. Uh, I cannot follow you into this. <laughs> um, I'm of the belief that Lars von Trier has only made one good movie, and it's Melancholia. <laughs> I, I so I just saw antichrist at such an age that i will never forget it and also i'll never know if i like that movie um (laughs) um i just uh it left an it left an impression on me um because i was 15 and i'd never seen a woman cut off her own clitoris in a movie um which now you see all the time (laughs) yeah yeah then then beyond return of the jokers has that (laughs) um so next time on stairwells in the realm of the senses (laughs) uh i don't remember any stairwells in in the green knight um i don't i don't remember a single one um nora mark and i might do an arcanum bonus episode about that if we do I might have to like watch the movie again to refresh my memory, and also I, I'm maybe gonna read the Tolkien translation of it because a, a lot of Nora and I's conversation during the movie was about um, like how it works as an adaptation because she really likes the old story, yeah, and um, I read it for class once six years ago and don't. I, I thought it was bad. I thought it was, like, bad in a way that I often think old things are bad. Um, specifically meaning, like, I don't I don't like medieval painting, and I don't... I'm not a person who's gonna sit here and read Beowulf. Um, it's just not who I am. Uh, and so... What was I saying? Um, like... I didn't care about it, but also I kind of want to like read the Tolkien version of that story and like at least get to grips with like what it is so that I can understand why the movie is, is the way it is because I, I feel like it's different, but I couldn't tell you how specifically. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, last thing. Uh, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. Uh, that movie's fucking incredible. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> um, one of the all-time, like, best Batman movies, best Batman stories. I fucking love Return of the Joker. It was such a delight to watch that today. Um, and um, just... It, it was such a delight because Return of the Joker and Batman Beyond in general, because I was born in 1996, is like sort of my entree into Batman. Yeah. Um, Whereas for like, me, it was like, oh, they're doing a new Batman cartoon now, huh? Yeah. And so, one, it is just fun to revisit the thing from your childhood and and find that a it holds up and b there's a lot more meat on the bones like there's a story that is about things um because it is like a movie for like 
young adults as much as it is a like cartoon for children to watch where batman beats up guys you know yeah um and like that is sort of the journey of you know watching the animated series in general as an adult um but it's just it's fun to watch batman beyond and be like oh this show is like good you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) and um what was the other thing i was gonna say about it it's just got everything I want from Batman, you know, it's got, like, it's got Bruce, like, standing around brooding about how he's conscripted all these children into his war against crime over the years, and, um, you know, how that's, like, ruined his own life, and he's ruined the lives of various children, and he feels a little bit bad about it, but no, he's not gonna stop doing it. Uh, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I was really taken with Return of the Joker. Um, if people want to hear more about it, you can. If people want to hear a little bit, a little bit more, um, you can listen to the episode of Gotham City Limits we recorded earlier today. Um, and also, I don't know. We don't get into like a ton of spoiler stuff because we will probably end up covering Return of the Joker at some point for Gotham City Limits. So, yeah. Uh, phenomenal movie though absolutely incredible also very clear that bruce tim and paul dini were just sitting around watching akira every day for like weeks you know (laughs) (laughs) and just like you just took um they just took like akira and y2k and just kind of like fused it together into into like a singular thing you know (laughs) yeah um so, uh, I'm gonna, for stairwell quality in Batman Return of the Joker, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a sort of tentative A. Um, I'm gonna give it, this is a sort of like, I'm not really thinking it through, just giving it an A, because if people have seen the animated series, there is a very, like, classic, iconic stairwell down from um Wayne Manor into the Batcave. You know exactly the thing I'm talking about if you yeah. if you've seen the show. Um and there is a scene where Joker walks down that stairwell um and it's just everything you want, you know? If you <laughs> if you care about Batman and the Joker, you have always kind of wanted to see the Joker walk down that stairwell and ruin Batman's day and it happens in this movie. So, yeah. Uh yeah. um oh i did put in tentative ratings for the the final two um of the rebuild movies um i figure we can actually talk about the stairwells and like maybe update the the ratings um after you've watched these movies but i did a d for for q for the third one um and then for decapo the fourth one i don't remember a stairwell at all so i did f but Mm. um you know, I I could be, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, Maybe don't I miss something. Me. I'm just watching you do bonus at bonus at bonus at bonus. <laughs> I didn't think about how that would wrap around to the next cells. Um. <laughs> uh. Anyway. Um. Do we want to talk about Tokyo Drifter? Um. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, Tokyo Drifter, one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, it's the best movie ever made. 
<laughs> How many movies it's, have I said that about? Um, a lot. <laughs> it it is one where so it's in the my four like my top four on um letterboxed and of those four it's the one that is closest to like usurping sonatine i think for me mm-hmm. um because it's just so fucking good uh i i love this movie and it is like part of why i'm also excited to talk about it is the fact that it is just an incredible like ornate stairwells movie like this is yes. this is stairwells core this is this is everything that i want to be talking about on stairwells <laughs> so uh some quick like you know facts and information and also a very brief summary um of the movie for people who are maybe not familiar with it um this movie comes out in 1966 it's uh uh directed by seijun suzuki um who is a guy who had been working in the like uh japanese like movie studio system for some time and uh kind of just decided like i'm gonna fuck around with this one i'm just gonna kind of do whatever you know just kind of fucking like it's a very he's given the script for a very rote run-of-the-mill um yakuza movie and he just decides to like go for it and by which i mean like plot and character and um uh theme and story all sort of take a backseat to visual spectacle um like sights and sounds and um that sort of stuff uh which makes this the easiest summary we've ever done um there is a yakuza man uh who lives in tokyo uh, it's His... coated blue for most of the film, but towards the end is white. Yes. Um, yeah. He, uh, his boss, want, he and his boss want to go legit and stop being Yakuza, but um, he is drawn back into a life of crime and kills a bunch of people, and then he has to flee Tokyo, and then he comes back to Tokyo because his old boss has betrayed him and sold him out, and he, you know kills a bunch more people and that's all that happens in the movie yeah (laughs) (laughs) along the way he makes some friends and they you know they all kind of brood at each other and like don't express their feelings but like you know the 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 sort of like long and the short of it is that uh nothing fucking happens and it's the greatest movie ever made (laughs) So, so this is like part of the reason why I I have this in here, because uh, you know I have this like larger project for, let's talk about Yakuza film, um, and the first one that we did was Red Peony Gambler, which I think is like, I mean it, it's a nice looking film. They're they're doing some interesting things, but it really is doing the genre, and it's just doing the genre in the way that like, fans of the genre would expect, right. Mm-hmm. Um, it is still like giving you all of the plot that you want in the way that you like fully expect that it would give you the plot, but it's all just rote plot. You know, if people go back and listen to that episode, I, I'm assuming there are people who are listening to this who did not listen to that episode because it was, uh, one, a kind of hard to find an obscure Yakuza film paired with, uh, like Mexican, um, docudrama, docudrama yeah, about, 
people, you know, crossing the border and like dealing with the movie had literally come out the week that we were recording the episode and wasn't like (laughs) available unless you went to theaters. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that was a good episode and I'd recommend people listen to it. And it's, it's sort of the start of me talking about like, okay, what is, what is the, like this project of, I want to have you watch a bunch of Yakuza films and like, let's talk through and let me like give you the history and why this genre excites me a lot. Um, and part of it is, so especially like what Red Peony Gambler is and also what Tokyo Drifter is, is this thing that would be considered Ninkyo Ega, um, which is this older form of Yakuza story that like actually predates um, film and like goes back to like folkloric stories. Um, and the main tension of it is basically this um, like conflict that exists between like your duty or your responsibility or like the obligations that you feel like you have to society. And often in Yakuza films that ends up being like your Yakuza boss, um, like the Yakuza family that you're tied to. And then like your, your humanity and like these, your desire to, to be a good person and to um, form these connections with people and things like that. And that basically the, the primary drama of the, the form is like, um, having to like kind of sacrifice your humanity because of the, the expectations and like the obligations put on you. Um, and often the like main cathartic moment that happens is sometimes the, they will finally like kill the, uh, evil boss. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and we talked in that episode about how sometimes this, like, th- there there are arguments within Japan, there's, like, an understanding of it, of, um, it's kind of a, like, release valve for class tensions, where you, you know, often the, like, villain is a, an evil boss or an evil landlord. And so it's, like, these people who hold power over you as, like, a normal person in society. Um, and you would never like kill them or whatever because <laughs> you're, you're a quote unquote <laughs> upstanding citizen, but right. you can watch this criminal do it and right. get the catharsis of like, wow, it would be great if I could just kill my boss. Um, <laughs> but never actually, but like you watch that and you get the catharsis. And so then you don't actually like continue to pursue any sort of other revolutionary impulse that would be like some sort of pushing for some sort of societal change. Um, and so there's kind of this understanding of the form as actually being like kind of a um like regressive like feudalistic um like it it is kind of using this image of like rebellion but it is couching it in such a way that it actually like can continue to reinforce status quo stuff. Um this is important for a lot of like thinkers who are writing about yakuza film in Japan cuz a lot of people who really like yakuza film in Japan are thinking about like um there's still a lot of like fascism here <laughs> and let's like, <laughs> let's interrogate the genre where, um, an honorable thing to do is to kill yourself for your boss. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyway, th- this is somewhat of a tangent, but I, there are multiple ones that we could do. Like I kind of have three films that are different ways that people were, um, messing with the genre. And for me, Tokyo Drifter is the one where 
really it's saying like, okay, this is, especially at this point, such a codified form. Like in the, the Red Peony Gambler episode, we talked about how there are like these very clear set pieces and we see them show up here as well. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the biggest ones that recurs that like, (laughs) you know, I know that we got an email question about uh, everyone comments on about it because it's fucking great in this movie, but it is just like a thing with the, with these movies is the, the person sings their own theme song, their ballad as they are going to do the final fight usually. Um, But there's like a moment where they are traveling, they sing their own song um, and it's kind of this moment of contemplation about like how their life has gotten to this point, And then usually culminates into like a, a giant climactic battle where a bunch of people die. And, you know, the hero like kills a bunch of people. Um, this happens a lot in Tokyo Drifter, but there, there are many other ways that it like this film gestures at, like, you know, the structure of a Yakuza film, um, presuming I, I think for many people in the West, people like actually aren't that familiar with the, the Yakuza film, which is why I think a lot of people in the West are like, wow, this film where he sings his own theme song. And it's like, this is literally Ninkyo Ega. Like basically every, you know, if you watch Red Peony Gambler ends with her singing her theme song before she goes and kills people. <laughs> right. Um, and that happens all the time. It's constant in the, these films. Um, and so what this movie can do is start playing with some of that stuff in ways where often it will very quickly gesture at, um, like, you know what this is. Like, you know the plot beats. You really don't need to know why the the Yakuza bosses are fighting. Or, like, you don't really need to know the names of the characters. In fact, you don't even necessarily need to remember which actor is the good one and the bad one. Because I will color code for you. Like, right. our hero is <laughs> going to be in blue for most of it. And then we'll be, like, wearing white at the end. Um, the, like... Bad Yakuza are almost always going to be coded with red. Um, the characters who are, like, neutral or civilian are going to be coded with, like, greens and yellows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so you can, like, very quickly just go, like, oh, okay, I know what the sides are. You've color-coded yeah. them for me. Um, I know what the conflicts anytime, are. <laughs> anytime a bad guy shows up on screen, there if the bad guy himself is not wearing red, he's using a red telephone or, like... There's a red, like, self, a red, like, box on screen, or there's, like, a red light in the background, or, you know, stuff like that, you know? Like, (laughs) anytime Um, a bad guy shows up, there is the color red, just to remind you, that's the bad guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, And so, really becomes this part where, like, the form becomes such, like, a... um, it, it is playing so directly into the form and even the things that you might look at in film and look at as being like aspects of symbolism are often just making it easier for you to like quickly understand what's happening with the plot. And I think what's interesting is it's like, okay, I'm using these color codings of red and blue, but then that means that I can play with color and this film can become about playing with color in ways that just like evoke responses in you where it's like, oh, he's wearing the blue coat, but then he, like, turns and you see the red phone box um, that he was, like, obscuring. And you're like, whoa, you know, like, red. And then it's the, like, <laughs> moment of the threat. And it's, like, literally just playing with the the, the visual form. Um, so I don't know if you have any initial thoughts, but I at this point I want to read some writing that was written, like, so I think this was in 69, um, it was like basically when Suzuki Seijun was being, so 
essentially the studio got annoyed with him for like doing these kinds of films where he was just like he was doing the genre but to such a point that like people who would just normally be like oh yeah i want to go watch a f- like fun yakuza movie might go and be like what the fuck is happening <laughs> like <laughs> even though they can follow it but they're like it doesn't seem like this cares at all about like the plot because it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't <laughs> yeah i mean so i think probably you're gonna end up getting into this with like the writing about it at the time but like i think the thing that like really blew me away the first time i saw this movie is that like <sighs> it's not um give me one second there i sorry people are texting me and my line is just like blip 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 uh <laughs> so the thing that really blew me away the first time i saw this movie is that like i i had not seen any yakuza movies but i am a I uh, spent a lot of my, like, teen years watching a lot of crime movies, and, mm-hmm. um, like, they're drawing from some similar traditions, and, like, so many crime movies are, like, we're gonna sort of observe the reality of, like, what it's like to be these, like, you know, criminals and these, like, down-and-out people, and, you know, um, like, uh, even a movie like um pulp fiction that is like very exaggerated about those things still sort of like takes place in something resembling reality i feel (laughs) um or or pulp fiction will like mix reality and unreality in like purposeful ways uh tokyo drifter is not a movie that is concerned with like human emotions or like depicting like the things that exist in the real world like I, I even just from a like visual perspective they're like hanging out in bars that just have like bare white walls so that's uh you know suzuki can like put a big yellow spotlight against the wall and you can <laughs> yeah. know okay there's a big yellow spotlight against this wall that means that the mood of this scene is this you know yeah. <laughs> um th- and I just hadn't seen anything like it. Like, and it's, I kind of haven't seen anything like it since then either. Like, this is a movie that does not care about saying things or, or telling a story. Um, it cares about like you just going and having a good time at the movies and understanding that like movies in and of themselves, like, you know, motion pictures are a fun thing and you can do fun things there um and you know um there are these famous quotes from suzuki about he how he fucking hates ozu movies because ozu is just like oh i'm gonna shoot people having feelings in an apartment and suzuki hates that shit (laughs) um but yeah uh I don't know if that sets you up well for what you wanted to talk about, but yeah. Um, yeah, I think it, I think it does. So the other, I forget if I like really got into this. So basically like, I'm going to, I'm going to do an example that will kind of show part of why this happened with the studio. Um, so in this movie, there's a, a scene where like we get a shot of the, the girl entering a building. Then we get a shot of her exiting the building 
Um, there's like a shot of like a gun and pressed up against her back and they get into a car. Um, like there's like a shot inside and they're driving. Then it cuts to a shot of like looking the other way at the driver and it is the hero. Um, you know, Tetsu, the Phoenix, but like, it's the hero. He's wearing his blue jacket. We know. (laughs) Um, and he turns around, it cuts back and the like, you know, bad Yakuza guys are like (gasps) all shocked. And then it's just like a bunch of quick shots of the car just like swerving around in a weird abandoned like you know there's just like pipes and stuff i don't i don't really understand where they're supposed to suddenly be um and supposedly in the script this was like 30 pages it was supposed to be like her getting kidnapped a car chase like all the stuff happening um and I guess he just decided that he thought it was boring. Um, he didn't want to do that part. And so he did this instead. Um, because really when he, what he wanted to do was focus on to, uh, like other things where he could just do whatever he was trying to do or like wanted to do with just color and movement and space. Um, and I could see how a car chase would be a lot harder to do a lot of the color stuff he's trying to do. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but sort of famously, there there were lots of ways that he was kind of not giving the studio what they wanted, and his movies actually weren't that popular, like, within broad popular spaces in Japan, um, but did become very popular with, like, um, especially particularly, uh, I would say, like, more leftist, young, um, like, college student group of like moviegoers Mm. um which included like film students at the time but also just kind of like college students in general and so suzuki seijun was 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 fired for not like giving the studio what they were asking for and not churning out hits um was part of it as well and then there was actually like protests and a riot (laughs) that occurred from like students um and so this essay that I'm going to read some from was so it's written by um, Hasumi Shigehiko, and it's kind of like the the basic premise of it is trying to say, um, like let me see if I can if I can put like pull out a little bit where they're making this argument, but it, like this is an argument in terms of like you should not have been fired. Um, so, the reason that Suzuki Station compels our complete allegiance in the current moment is not other that truly he has been an author who has lived in silence, but more than that, we must do so when we carefully examine the various heterogeneous elements that are wound through the essence of his si- of this silence, including even his illegitimate firing and the seizure of his work, those acts which constitute the destruction of the space of imagination at the societal level. It must be the force of the particular forms of the innumerable works birthed in tremendous anguish that gradually pushed the author Suzuki Seijun towards his silence. Um, and essentially the like overall argument of this is that silence is like such a preoccupation for Suzuki Seijun that it actually doesn't make sense to try and silence him by firing him and seizing his works. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of what the end argument is. But I want to read some other stuff because I think it like highlights, one, why I love this movie so much and also why I think it's a really uh, stairwell core movie um Mm -hmm. so uh this is also towards the beginning of the essay um 
As will be evident from what I have been saying up to this point, I would first like to confirm the fact that what upholds the work of Suzuki Seijun, just as with any form that is extraordinarily rich, is not some deep meeting hidden in the background, nor is it the height of repeated, reflective thought anticipating the work. Rather, it is solely the life force that courses through the form itself. Um, And so kind of making this argument that, like, what is so great about his films is not that, like you watch it and you can like interpret and divine some deep meaning within it or that it like comes from this like great, like in some ways it's almost, this is pushing against like a a fully authorial reading of him as well and saying like, no, what is great about it is just, you watch the like movie itself and it is like, there's a life force coursing in it. Um, It is just exciting to watch. And that is like the point of it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um hopefully that stuff makes sense. Cause I know I'm reading from like an academic paper that has been translated from Japanese, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, I mean, it's just like, um, like this is the thing that like, <sighs> this is the thing that I want to reach toward on stairwells as a like project. Like this is what I want stairwells to be about is not is like reaching toward and I know that this exists in the world but but for myself and for us and for like the people around us who like reach toward a sort of like way of talking about and thinking about movies where they're like aesthetic objects where you're like watching 24 frames per second synced up uh, of like images synced up to sounds and like thinking about like the the sorts of like sights and sounds first and foremost rather than like what some sort of holistic and like you know more readings of movies that are more like holistic and, and 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 like political or or ideological or like at the very least centered on like writing and story like i want to like on this podcast develop ways of like talking about movies that um are just us getting excited when there's a sick fucking bar fight yeah you know (laughs) and and yeah like i think this writer is absolutely getting at it like that is like the life of the movie that is like electricity you know um and like i think that stuff like this is like important and valuable and just as much as you know just as much as like the seventh seal or whatever (laughs) you know um and there ought to be like space for considering movies in this way um so yeah yeah um and so one of the other things that like kind of brought into like when i think about tokyo drifter in particular another essay that i think about is against interpretation by susan sontag which is i i have issues with this like essay as a whole i think Sontag often will like make these really strong cases of being like, we need to completely reject this thing, not because she actually believes that we need to completely reject something, but because she thinks that like 
making a case against it helps us further think through like where is it valuable and where is it not um the other issues that i have with her her essay against interpretation is that there's a lot of like she kind of constructs this like oh once upon a time we didn't have this idea of like interpreting art this is the thing that like first rose out of mimetic theory from Plato and Aristotle, which is this like assumption that art is always trying to represent or like mimic reality in some way. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's kind of arguing that like, even as we have um, evolved our understanding to like include things that are beyond realism as a form, um, we still have this like idea that is tied to mimetic theory that like comes out of it, that the like content the like what is it that it is saying is more important than like the form of the art itself um and that this is like different than what she supposes was like this this earlier form of art that was just all about ritual and like the art as a thing that just like the art itself was the thing and you Mm -hmm. had it and it was a part of like the ritual and the the you know it was encantery and magical and these sorts of things but this is some of the stuff where i kind of grumble a little bit because it's falling into some of this like oh before society we had like the good nature right right, <laughs> um, right. <laughs> which um i have very complex feelings about because that also comes up in Taoism a lot but i think Taoism like interrogates that concept a lot in a way that a lot of western writing doesn't um mm-hmm. but anyway um the part that I find especially interesting though, and that, that I think influences the way that I talk about a lot of like when it comes to criticism as well, um, is she kind of makes this argument that I, that I think I agree with that. Um, like, let me, let me read part of this essay cause I've pulled it up. Um, directed to art interpretation means plucking a set of elements, the X, the Y, the Z and so forth from the whole work. The task of interpretation is virtually one of translation. The interpreter says, look, don't you see that X is really, or really means a, that Y is really B, that Z is really C. What situation could prompt this curious project of trans uh, for transforming a text? Um, and then she makes this argument that I also don't know if I fully believe that like this idea of interpretation also comes out of trying to um, restore religious texts like the Bible. Once we like evolve our understanding or we don't view it as purely historical and like everything in it happened actually, but we don't want to discard the text. We have to like t- make these metaphorical readings of like, oh, you know, the story of the flood um is really talking about this aspect or like the story of walking through the desert for 40 years before getting entry into the promised land is really about like the tribulations that the soul have to go through before they can get true deliverance. Um, these like mm-hmm. ways of interpreting it that um, can fit with our modern conception of reality. Um, but the part of this that like for me that I, that I hold on to and that continues to, to, um, like inform how I think about criticism is this idea that like any form of criticism for me, any form of interpretation is always a certain translation where um, it is part of a dialogue that like you are having with the artwork. Mm -hmm. And so in that process, like your interpretation is always going to be a different thing than what the actual artwork is. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think there is ever a true interpretation of anything. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
one of the things she's doing in the essay, and this is one of the biggest like beasts I have with it, is like calling into question stuff like Marxist interpretation or Freudian interpretation. Fuck Freudian interpretation. I'm far more in favor of Marxist interpretation, but like <laughs> I think she's still making this point that there's a certain reactionary impulse to um, look at a piece of artwork and then say, how do I like subsume this into my ideological worldview and not how do I like actually engage in it on its own terms? Um, and it's a thing that I like, I think about. And I, part of what I think is important is it's like, you then have to ask yourself, like, what is the value then if I am, if I am translating this work, like, why am I doing that? Um, what, what is like being gained in that process? And sometimes it's just like, an important thing for me is I like talking about art with people because I feel like I understand them better and they understand me better. Um, and that like having a human connection through talking about interpretations of art is like in and of itself meaningful to me. (laughs) Um, that's why I do podcasts and I don't write essays anymore. (laughs) Right. Um, and so like, I think this is also kind of tying into some of this of, for me, Ornate Stairwells will always be a movie where we will talk about, like, what we thought of the movie and how, like, oh, we thought that this scene was sick. But part of the, like, underlying thesis to me of this podcast is, like, and you should just go watch the the movie and have whatever aesthetic experience you're going to have with it because, like, we can't, we can't replicate that. We can't duplicate it. Oh we can't God. actually translate watching Tokyo Drifter for you. Go watch Tokyo Drifter. <laughs> right? Can I... I have something totally unrelated that I have to tell you right now, real quick. Okay. <laughs> Let's go. I was... I was just, you know, scrolling on Wikipedia, as I often do, um, while we've been talking. I just realized I've had Flux on the whole time, so I just watched Tokyo Drifter <laughs> with Flux on that whole time. <laughs> That's all. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm just shaking my head at you. I need to just uninstall Flux or like tell it to not turn on on Thursdays if that's a thing I can do. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean there's lots of other interesting stuff in the the um essay by Hasumi uh that I talked about. Like one of the things um like this essay specifically starts talking with youth of the beast, but it's talking about like, Oh, at the very beginning of the title, you have like all of the characters in green, except for like, no, which would be like the possessive, which is very small and is like sandwiched between all of the other characters, but as in like a striking red color and that like red continues to occur. And basically mm-hmm. is making this argument that like, just as in like Renaissance paintings where red might draw your, like a red blot might draw your eye to that point, single point in the painting. And that the, like the painter might be doing that intentionally. Um, that Suzuki Seijun like uses color to specifically just like invest you in, in moving throughout the film. Um, in this way that then like continues to escalate where the plot itself becomes a thing that is just like invest, like the, the plot gets folded into the form rather than like having content and meaning where it's just like, that is also continuing to like create dynamism and compel you and like excite you. Um, in these ways that are like separate from you having any, like you don't really care about what happens in the film. 
Um, right. And yet, like for me, and th- this essay doesn't go to like this point, but a lot of this also reminds me of music where like... Mm-hmm. I was notes, getting here, actually. Yeah, yeah, notes in and of themselves don't really mean much. Um, there isn't like a logical meaning. Like you can break down the mathematical logic of music and yet how that then ends up evoking emotional responses in you is like, I feel like a lot of music is about understanding these certain patterns will evoke these emotional responses, but they don't like really fully get at the heart of like, but why? <laughs> um, right. And I know, I know there's some about like, oh, some of this stuff might suggest like there's, you know, something like has the sense of falling or rising and that might like create certain emotional responses. But so much of it is like, outside of verbal communication so much of it is like almost these heart like why do we hear that as falling in the first place (laughs) right like right you you get to a certain point where you're just like i we just have ingrained in us that music like can create emotional sensations in us and i feel like we also have that with visual stuff and this is just a a film that does it in a way that nobody else does (laughs) that i you know i've seen Right, and so like the 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 um, I feel like um, in a lot of film criticism, there is this sort of idea that there is a divide between form and function, uh-huh. or that form should serve function. Um, I feel like is a pretty common like stance, like the style of the movie must serve some greater purpose for like you know the 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 story you're trying to tell for the message you're trying to like um send out to the viewers and i just love that tokyo drifter like one sort of like says that dichotomy is fake that form and function are the same thing that like film form is film function and like also that like it can go the other way that like this the sort of like message that you can be sending out to the viewers is like hey let's just have a good time we're just here for the next 83 minutes and we're just gonna have a good time and we're just gonna fuck around and do you know random bullshit we're gonna put like damaged film stock on screen that you can't fucking see shit if it's over like you know like like the skyline like anything that is like even kind of light is just blown the fuck out um and there's gonna be like these incredible sparse sets because like like sets are what movies are about a little bit they're sort of constructed reality you know um and the movie's not capital s saying things about that it is just like ah this is what movies are is they they are these constructed realities and let's have fun in one for 83 minutes and i fucking love this movie (laughs) um and yeah like i feel like um doing hot singles um we've had a lot of folks in the time that we've done hot singles talk to us about how they have a hard time quote unquote getting into music and Mm -hmm. um i think 
and it's a sentiment that I have echoed a few times on Hot Singles a little bit. Because, um, like our next episode, our, our, our next episode of Hot Singles, we're going to be talking about two instrumental jazz albums: "Bitches Brew" and by Miles Davis, and "Journey to the One" by Pharaoh Bitches Sanders. Brew is such a good fucking album. It is. <laughs> it is. And I like when Hot Singles gets into talking about instrumental music, um, because. My sort of default critical apparatus is to, um, <laughs> um, like, talk about the lyrics and, like, it's why I like rap music. I, I like rap music because there is always, like, someone telling me something in a very deliberate way. Um, and so I like when Hot Singles gets into, um like instrumental music because it forces me to remember that like music is so much more than like words yeah um and i think a lot of people who are fans of hot singles have talked to us about oh i have so much trouble getting into music because i can't express you know, sorts of my, my sort of feelings about a song. I can listen to a song and enjoy it or not enjoy it. And I can, you know, um, ha I know what my feelings are, but I don't know how to express them in any way to someone else. I don't know how to share in my love of music with other people in a way that I can share in my love of, you know, video games because... I can play it and I can tell you, oh, it feels good when I press the jump button or, oh, well, the story is good or bad or, you know, um, there's a very, like, developed critical language online for talking about video games and for talking about stories in movies. And a lot of people that we know have trouble talking about music because on some level it is just, like, aesthetics and affect. Um, and... Like, I circumvent this a lot of time on Hot Singles by talking about music in ways that are not aesthetic <laughs> and not effective, <laughs> you know, and talking about, yeah. you know, um, here's what Tyler is rapping about on this song. Um, and so, yeah, I like, I like when music pushes me out of that comfort zone, and I like when movies push me out of that comfort zone, and... Yeah, I also, like, on some level, like, kind of what you were saying earlier, like, I can describe to you why I like Bitches Brew so much. I can describe to you why I like Tokyo Drifter so much, but on some level, it's it's an 83-minute movie, you know? It's a 45-minute <laughs> yeah. album or whatever it is. Just go listen to it, and then we can share in the sort of, like, um, joy of having had this experience. Um, and that is just such a fun thing to me. And so on some level, I want Stairwells to be a podcast about, like, hey, I saw this cool thing. You should go see it, too. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel like, I mean, it's interesting because sometimes 
we we do this in with stairwells a lot like you know i feel like if people go and listen to the red peony gambler and i carry you with me double feature episode like i carry you with me we talk a lot about like mm. politics and how narrative in it is like framing ideas of you know queerness and immigration and everything um and then we talk about red peony gambler and we're just like yeah i was sick when she was in the one colored window and then the other colored window (laughs) well and Um, and the other thing is that like in um in the i carry you with me segment um i don't fully indulge in this in a way i wish maybe i had but like i get into a little bit of like well you know the film form the sort of like the way that this movie is shot entirely and handheld and close up and blah 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 really detracts from the story they're trying to tell. And I'm like, I can do that. I can get into the sort of like, here's how the cinematography of the movie affects the story you're trying to tell. I think the best movies shake me out of that mode and just put me into like, like I I could talk to you about like the things that close up do in Tokyo Drifter and the ways that like close-ups function in this movie differently from how they function in most movies I think yeah um I don't want to talk about it I want to talk about how sick it is when they're in the bar fight and that whole fucking like like (laughs) upper level just collapses (laughs) and it's fucking rules um like this is one of the things that's great about it too because like the the final shootout in this movie is so fucking good um the that like lounge bar where she sings just makes no fucking sense it's an actual like establishment that someone would go to it purely exists to be a staging ground for like a very cool fight <laughs> um and there's like what you could point it as like color symbolism with the statue that's holding up the like donut ring thing and it first is red and then like when the people are kind of neutralized it's white and then once like truly everything is like confirmed to be done and over it finally becomes the like yellow green color um that like you know symbolizes like oh the the like here she can have her civilian life um but all of it is just gesturing to a point to a plot that is itself pointless. Um, and so really what that whole sequence is, is I'm not watching it being like, Oh, the color symbolism is like meaning this thing. That's telling me something that's like, uh, you know, important or, or meaningful. Really what's happening is like, Oh, I can use this way that I am using color to align with plot to just make all of it. Like what's fun about it is that the lights change. (laughs) right (laughs) like what's exciting is just that like there are moments where it will cut and then cut back and where characters are at don't make sense but it's it's fun to then have him over there catching the gun that he threw up in the air or whatever like (laughs) um on some level like (laughs) continuity editing is like oppressive and terrible and like Anything that is even for like two frames not doing continuity editing feels so free. You know, it feels like the the world could, anything could happen. You're watching a movie. We don't have to do continuity editing all the time. (laughs) Yeah, there's a moment um, where like early on where some of the betrayal starts happening. um, And it's in like uh, that 
that room with the the door. So there's like two different rooms um, and there's a door in between and uh, someone like fires and then the door is supposed to like open and the guy falls out. And my guess is that Suzuki Seijun just wanted to have it happen faster. Right. (laughs) But he just like, he like cuts out like maybe like five frames and it's like this jump cut that literally is just like, well, now he's falling faster and he just does it because it, it's better if he falls faster. It's just more fun if he falls faster. Who fucking cares if you can see that there's a jump cut there? Like, <laughs> um, it's great. <laughs> it's actually kind of just fun to be like, whoa, jump cut. <laughs> um, such a, it's just a fucking incredible film. Um, and it's, yeah, it, in terms of like movies, like one of the only other movies that gets as close to this um is <laughs> um 2001 a space odyssey which to me is just very much like yeah. like when i watch it i watch it as like an overture mm-hmm. um and it's just like okay like classical music figures so heavily and just like the way that stillness and silence is also used um feels like it is like doing something musical and so there are people who have all these takes about like 2001 a space odyssey is really about you know mankind's need to evolve beyond tools and i'm like sure that's in there that's not why i fucking like 2001 a space yeah. odyssey i like it i understand how you just, watch that movie yeah. <laughs> and get that but like who fucking cares i love it when david bowie comes back to earth <laughs> <laughs> i hate when girls die <laughs> Um, it is funny how this movie is just in the way that all Yakuza movies are kind of gay. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. the scene where the, the rival, so, uh, he like briefly has his own theme song that a lot of Yakuza movies will have the rival Yakuza who is like also honorable, but may end up on like the other side because it, they're both on, you know, the sides of warring families or something. Um, and so at one time they were, they were like rivals and fought each other, but then both of them kind of left the, the families. And so now they're like both drifters and they're, they're alike in that way. Um, and so there's just like the scene where he, you know, the, the rival character takes the bullet out of, uh, Tetsu's arm. Um, and it's just like, this is gay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then, you know, it's just like I'm just gonna stay until you're well. Still gay. They they have a a look where they cannot say the feelings that they have as they're going into the final confrontations in this uh in this film, um, and then after that, Tetsu says to the woman like, "I'm a drifter. I I don't need women in my life." <laughs> um, I forgot to a tell drifter you. does not need a woman. <laughs> yeah. Um. So we were watching the movie and we were just talking gay, gay, gay. We were just shouting that at the screen. Yeah. Um, and we're just like, just talking about how gay this movie is. Um, and <laughs> but after we watch the movie, I get up and I grab some chips and Nora and I are chit chatting and she's like, you're the sort of person who would do a letterbox review where you say that, uh, uh, Brokeback Mountain has queer subtext. <laughs> <laughs> um and 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 i just i just think the movie's gay 
I just think yeah. the movie's gay, and I refuse to be made fun of for thinking every movie is gay. Uh, but I do think every movie is like, uh, I just I watch every single movie, and I'm like, this is about how men uh, can't express anything toward each other, and yeah. you know. <laughs> Uh, any anytime two men look at each other for a little too long and say nothing we're just like well we know what this is <laughs> they're gay <laughs> i just think that movies are often about um the sorts of uh like bridges between people that cannot like or the 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 distance between people that cannot be bridged um uh, I think that is, like, a common theme of, like, 20th century cinema. And I also think that, um, like, movies are almost always about men, which just makes it so that ac- totally by accident, almost every movie made in the 20th century is low-key about how men can't tell each other their feelings. Um, and they could tell each other their feelings if they just weren't so heterosexual all the time. Um, it's not my fault that, um, every movie is gay because society has made it that way. (laughs) Yes. Um, on the topic of that, I, so you're going to do the next movie pick. I'm going to do a pick and it's probably not going to be a Yakuza movie because I'm trying to like space this out a little bit and not just do a bunch of Yakuza movies. Then you'll do a pick and then I already know what I'm doing for that, like, you know, it would be what episode? Uh, episode no, fifteen. Tw- yeah, fifteen. <laughs> um, which is shout out to Rick, champion of ornate stairwells, um, heavyweight found... champion of the world, yeah. <laughs> greatest fan of all time. <laughs> um, honestly, just fucking incredible move here. Finding um a a far better subtitled version. Uh, also, just higher quality version of Hibari no Mori no Ishimatsu, um, which is one of my favorite like Ninkyo Ega uh, Yakuza movies of all time. Um, and it's precisely because it is a Yakuza movie that is about how fucking gay Yakuza movies are. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you can tell that it's this because they cast the main character as um, Misora Hibari, who is like what was known for even as a little girl being a drag king. Um, and so mm-hmm. she is playing Ishimatsu who is like, you know, a, a male character in the movie um, and is the hero of the movie. And then most of these movies will have some sort of like uh blood brother or, or rival or something where, you know, we we've talked about it here in Tokyo drifter. Um, the, the sort of like blood brother who Ishimatsu goes around with is played by an actor who is known for being a drag queen. Um, and at the end of the movie, they sing a, uh, duet together, which in the way that it it is handled is very like, oh, this is just a heterosexual duet, except for the text that like of the film that these are supposed to be two men. And then also the like cultural knowledge that they are both drag performers. One of them Mm -hmm. is currently not in drag, but like (laughs) they are both drag performers. This makes the whole duet, the gayest fucking duet I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, (laughs) It's just like MTF for FTM. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> it's it's an incredible film. So um, yeah, if people are like, I want to I want to explore a little bit more. What is this? Yakuza movies are gay. Uh, don't worry, we're gonna do it. <laughs> we're gonna do the gayest Yakuza movie I've ever fucking seen. And I've seen the first battles without movie. A movie about two men who drink each other's blood and then stare longingly at each other. <laughs> if you um. If you want to find this movie, because as we've talked about many times on the podcast, it is a hard hard to find movie. Um, you can go to the Abnormal Mapping Discord, uh, which is just at abnormalmapping.com. There's a link somewhere. Um, in export chat, search something like search something like from Rick um, and like archives or like. Um, it's it was sent on August twenty fourth. Um, if you if you uh, can't find it for any reason, totally feel free to message me. I'll I'll yeah, pass it people along. People can message me as well. Um, <laughs> this you is can one also too search... that I I don't feel that bad just saying on a podcast because like it's it's just it's not, not out in the U S. There's never been an official U S. It's not even you like just a, can't find this movie. Yeah. Um, the this is probably a rip of a gray market copy that was mm-hmm. like created by someone in the first place because uh, there's just yeah. never been like a u.s version of this film uh, it just does not exist so um but um the uh it just look it looks really good i think uh um, yeah. it's a pretty good transfer of it um so yeah, if you so, yeah. live if you live in a country where you can legally buy this movie, I highly encourage you to to encourage it to like be spread around more. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's worth it. Um But yeah, um I have a question for you. Yes. How would you rate the stairwell in Tokyo Drifter? Um there are multiple stairwells. There are. I would say um, I've already think, put something in, and I'm not going to budge on this. <laughs> yeah, I see it. I I think that this is an S, um, especially yeah. with there being multiple. I mean, you know, we have the purple stairwell that, like, we see someone tumble down, um, and that is, After like, getting shot. Don't forget yeah, that part. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's also where, like, people go up that stairwell to then, like, call on the red phone, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, and then, yeah, again, someone tumbles down it after being shot. Um, we've got the stairwell that's in the lounge where she sings and there's the moment where she's like, you know, they faints. tell her that Tetsu is dead and she, she, yeah, faints on the stairs. Um, the, like one of the final shots is him standing on a white stair case, um, and just like posing being like, yes, the name of the podcast is ornate stairwells. Uh, <laughs> me, Suzuki Seijun in 1966 knew that someone would have a podcast called ornate stairwells and put this shot in so that they could take a screenshot and make it into cover art. <laughs> I, so we've talked a little bit about how like, uh, theme songs feature heavily in Ninkyo Ega movies. Um, mm-hmm. there is a so i don't think that this is a movie that is about like characters who understand they're in a yakuza movie like i don't think it's doing this sort of like fourth wall breaking thing but it dips its toe into that just a little (laughs) bit because um there reaches a point in the movie where characters in universe start to hear um tetsu singing the tokyo drifter song and you're like ah fuck (laughs) 
Oh, when, shit. He's about to kill all of us. <laughs> yeah, whenever he sings, it is diegetic. Um, like, yes. every time that he sings or whistles or whatever his own theme song, it is diegetic, and people are aware um, that, like, in a way where, again, I don't know if it's fully fourth wall breaking or just in the way that, like, everything in this film is just, like, subsumed to the meaninglessness of the genre plot of, like, everybody is just kind of aware that if you hear the theme song and especially if, if it's the person themselves singing it, that means people are going to die. Um, and to, to... I'm hearing it. And so I'm probably the one going to die. <laughs> so there are two really funny things with that then. Uh, and I brought this up because he's singing it on this stairwell at the very end. Um, yeah. like the last shot of the movie. Um, yeah. And then the, he walks of... away from the stairwell is like the final shot that says, the yes, end, so. <laughs> yes. Um, so there's one scene where there's like 20 dudes who are like attacking, um, some friends of Tetsu's basically. And Tetsu is like, he doesn't want to go back to this life of crime. He doesn't want to go back to the killing, but he, he realizes it. it is his fate. It is what he is. You know, he has to. Um, and so he starts walking toward the battle and singing, and then it cuts to, um there's like 20 or 30 dudes with swords in this room and they hear him singing and they're like oh fuck and then it cuts to tetsu like leaving this town basically because you know what happens next he walked into the room singing the song they're all dead they're all fucked (laughs) and then the other thing that happens in um the huge bar fight scene where also stairwell features prominently in this huge bar fight scene this the sort of end of it is that this um one yakuza who has been chasing down tetsu this whole movie and like hates his guts fucking hates tetsu uh he thinks he got him um he thinks he shot tetsu and tetsu uh died but tetsu was actually playing badger like playing possum and um Tetsu's friend has this rival Yakuza at gunpoint, um, and Tetsu is laying on the floor and starts whistling his theme song, and the rival Yakuza becomes so terrified upon hearing Tetsu's song that he kills himself, (laughs) which is maybe the funniest thing that's ever happened in a movie. (laughs) Um, Uh, Yeah, it's incredible. It's just... (laughs) Not not to, like, you know, make light of whatever. Uh, not trying to make too much light of that, but it is funny that he's, like, he hears that song and knows he's doomed and so just, like, rolls with it. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't... There, there are, like, a few other parts that would be fun to read from the, this essay, but otherwise I don't really have much... Um more to say about this movie if i'm being honest um i'm I'm just gonna read this one quick part because i i think it is gets to some of the point of what i'm saying um so like part of the argument that this essay makes is youth of the beast is about like drawing you deeper like in like a, a depth sense, like purely depth, not the metaphorical way that we talk about depth, but just like drawing you deeper into the movie, like into the sense of like the depth of the, the movie. Um, 
to this point where like it then ends with you becoming aware of like the flatness of the film itself that like that depth has never been there and calls it depthless depth. Um, and then they like do this similar thing talking about the movement that's happening in, in branded to kill as heightless heights. Um, and, and basically the like ending conclusion for this stuff tends to be like, really what's happening here is it's just about like the movement within the, the film. And that also it like, it ends at a place, um, that like, just makes you like you leave the theater aware that like that was the movie you watched <laughs> mm-hmm. right um that hasn't like changed your life in this like profound way it was a it was a like it was a movie that was like this experience and it's an experience that you have but also like come on it's just a movie <laughs> mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but uh this is apart from the the branded to kill where um you know the author's talking about this like concept of hype um, therefore, we must examine the changes of our perception of space that appear in this uh, little single upward sensation as we might consider the development of the narrative as well as the particular forms of the work. Um, in this, we must resolutely refrain from pursuing the flows of Freudian psychoanalysis or making use of Bachelard's spatial phenomenology. I would like to begin by grasping merely this upward orientation as the generalized manifestation of complex movements within the film. They're just like, don't try and think of any stupid symbolism around heights. It's literally just (laughs) moving upward in a film. (laughs) It's literally just a movement. That's all I'm talking about is movement. Shut the fuck (laughs) up. It's just a trick <laughs> section. I love it. <laughs> um, this is this is a great uh, essay. It, I so the version that I have was translated by um, professor of the Yakuza course that I took, uh, and it, it's like I don't think it's been released unless he's released it since. Um, but it is called Suzuki Seijun and the Moment of His Silence. It was originally published as. Uh, so the the Japanese title Suzuki Seijun to Sono Chinmoku no Naritachi in Cinema sixty nine number two nineteen sixty nine um, in Tokyo. So uh, if anyone reads Japanese and wants to try and hunt down this essay or something, you might be able to find it. But I just wanted to f- actually credit it at the end here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, do you have a pick? Um. I'm still thinking through my pick a little bit, um, but I wanted to, um, I wanted to like see if the listeners could help me out with uh, something. Uh, so I'll talk about that real quick. Um, so there was a tweet going around the other day that, um, uh, so um, there is a 1976 film. Uh, from iran called uh chess of the wind um that for decades was more or less lost prints of it existed but they're pretty hideous to look at um and like someone like in 2014 um the negatives were found and um janice uh the 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 sort of parent company of Criterion um, did a restoration of this movie. It looks gorgeous. It also looks up my alley because it is a sort of like murder mystery avant-garde thing about um, 
rich people who hate each other, seemingly. Um, I don't know much about this movie. Um, it seems like it's been shown, like, this new restoration has been shown at Cannes, um, and maybe some other film festivals. If listeners are aware of any sort of, like, home video distribution of this movie, or, or anything that's like, oh yeah, they're planning to put this movie out, you know, next year sometime. If anybody knows more about that, um, hit me up. I'm going to try and find out more about it because I just, um, I saw this tweet going around and I thought of it because I would love to talk about it on the podcast. Um, yeah, I definitely also considered it and I was just like, I don't know when it's going to be available, but I was doing some cursory Googling while we've been talking and couldn't find anything, but that was like, I'm not reading anything really. I was just like trying to like Google, like, you know, release date and chess of the wind. So if you know anything about chess of the wind and anything Janice has said about, you know, when they intend to put it out, uh, hit me up, uh, for sure. Just post about it in the discord. Um, whenever that's coming out, we're going to talk about it. Like that'll be, that's like top of the list for me because I'm interested in this. It did give me, um, we're not going to talk about that movie, but it did give me a thought, which was that, um, we have really enjoyed talking about, um, and watching, um, I felt like there was another one of these. We, uh, best movie we've talked about for the podcast is probably Rebels of the Neon God. And we have talked about a little bit wanting to do more Taiwanese movies because um, it is not a thing that we know much about, or at least I don't. Um, Rebels of the Neon God is one of the main, like, new Taiwanese cinema films that I had seen, so. I wanted to throw at you, um, like, thinking about restorations of movies, um, like, do we want to talk about a Wong Kar Wai movie? Um, and I, well, okay. I guess what I want to say is, I think we should talk about a Wong Kar Wai movie, uh, next. And I would leave it to you to, like, pick which one. I guess I would lean toward, um, Chung King Express, but I have no, you know, I don't feel yeah. that strongly about it. If you have, like, a hankering to see in the mood for love or something. Um, yeah, I like <laughs> it's funny you said the exact one that would be the one where I'm like, oh, but in the mood for love. <laughs> <laughs> I knew those um, were the two. I knew those yeah. were like the two big ones. So, um, oh, I kind of want to do in the mood for love. Okay, um, let's do that. Yeah, especially like. Part of this is coming down to as well that um, the the two main like um, new Taiwanese cinema like films that I saw were kind of like early mid nineties, mm-hmm. um, and in the mood for love is is two thousand, um, you know Hong Kong and France. So um, yeah, I think um... I think that would be a a fun. You know, it would be slightly different, like, time frame to to think about some of this, like, Asian cinema stuff. Yeah, I mean, the other thing here was that while we've been talking about film aesthetic stuff so much, I was like, oh, do I want to just do Persona? Do I want to do Persona? 
<laughs> and I just felt this like we could just not talk about European cinema so much, you know? <laughs> like we could talk about, you know, um movies from like other parts of the world, which I think we've been doing pretty good at, but I think mostly uh because you bring movies from other parts of the world and I bring movies from the US and Europe and I was like, "Ah, let's let's talk about Wong Kar Wai. Let's talk about like not something from, you know." Yeah. I I have a I have a couple ideas of what I might be doing for my next pick, and uh, at least one of them is a, a like Scandinavian film. So it might be nice to do, <laughs> yeah, Wong Kar Wai here. Um, so yeah, we'll do In the Mood for Love next. Um, feel good about that. That is uh, okay. So then, follow up question. We had talked a little bit about like the restorations that uh, Wong Kar Wai oversaw for his movies recently yeah. has been somewhat controversial because he did um, change a lot of stuff. Uh, I may be inclined for myself to watch the version that is on Criterion Channel because that is easy. Yeah. But... Um, if you were like, no, 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 we should watch, you know, the some older edition of the movie, or if the listeners feel strongly about it, please feel free to say something in the Discord about like, um, you know, you, you know, one way or the other, like how you feel about the restorations that Wong Kar Wai has done, and that'll probably influence, you know, whatever version of this also accessibility you know yeah. me being able to find older versions of the movie will influence that <laughs> yeah definitely so um i have i have two things mm -hmm. one we forgot to do emails two i have to pee <laughs> so i'm gonna go pee real quick <laughs> で生きてもがれ gonna have an episode that's just like an hour and a half um <laughs> it's still a long time for a lot of podcasts that i've listened to to talk about tokyo drifter but we did it <laughs> <laughs> then i remembered we have emails um we're back um while nia was uh in the restroom i did some googling and i'm gonna re revise what i said five minutes ago I would very much like to watch the uh, older, like, 
home video releases of um these Wong Kar Wai movies, uh, specifically in the mood for love. So if people know how to get a hold of those, please get in touch. Um, I'm doing some like cursory Googling, but like, yeah, I'm going to lean toward, we should watch how those movies were first released for home video and not the restorations Wong Kar Wai has done because just taking a glance at some quick comparisons, I don't like the changes that he made. (laughs) Um, And also, I think maybe I'm just, um, you know, the the person who um, I think I'm just the person who is like historically minded enough that even if I liked this new version better, I would always be more interested in like what was originally released than like some something that the creator came in and did like 20 years later to like fuck around with it. So yeah, yeah. Next time we'll be watching. Oh, rebuild of Evangelion. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. You know what I meant. <laughs> I do. Um, next so time, I in the mood that. for love. Original versions. Um, if you can find them. If you can't find those, um, then you can totally watch the Criterion Channel version. Um, anyway, spent too long talking about this. I just stated the same thing seven times. Emails. Emails. Um, do you want to read, or do you want me to read? Um. There's three emails, so we can alter yeah. them. Okay. Who's starting? Um, you read this one from uh, Marine. Okay. Um, Marin? Sorry if Marin, I said your name yeah, wrong. Yeah, Marin, Marine. I, mm-hmm. I'm i defaulting to, like, Swedish pronunciation, which I think would be Marine, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Apologies. Feel free to correct us. Um, yeah. So, anyway, um, V says... Hi, I'm a big fan of the theme song for this movie. So my question is what other movies would be greatly improved by having the main character sing a theme song about themselves? Um, so, you know, one, I, I think often with this movie, I've seen variations of the question. And when people are like, yeah, more movies should do this uh, again, just watch a bunch of Ninkyo Ega. But um, <laughs> I think we, it's also fun to think about, well, what would be other movies where, what if we just take this trope from Ninkyo Ega and, and <laughs> transpose it into whatever other movie we want. Um, so let me take a quick look at, would the hunger be improved by this? <laughs> um, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Would no regrets for our youth be improved by this? um absolutely yeah uh i know the answer to this one would butch cassidy and the sundance kid be improved by this yes 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 yes. 100 percent, yes um the rest of the the rest of the movies we've covered um i could go either way on like i don't know i don't know that rebels of the neon god needs the main character to sing a song about himself I actually um, think it would probably be worse if he did. I think that would be worse. The other Mulholland Drive would be funny, but like it, I don't know if it would improve it. Um, yeah, Red Peony Gambler, she already does that. Um, yeah, I carry you with me. I guess <laughs> um, it would be something. Yeah, um, Wings of Desire. Um, if you do spoken word poetry, the woman in that kind of already does that. <laughs> yeah. The, the the other one I wanted to say, Angels of the Universe is a, a pretty damn good movie. Yeah. It is 
pretty fucking good. <laughs> yeah. I don't there's not a lot of notes that I would um give to uh to improve this movie. But if I peeked into an alternate timeline, an alternate universe where a version of this movie existed that did have a song about the character, I think it would be a pretty good, pretty good full thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would be good. <laughs> Preferably um, like, one written by Ciaros. <laughs> yeah. Um, Akira would be fucking great. Um, yeah. Especially if they just like lavishly animated it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I'm trying to think if there's another like really good movie that I feel like would be improved by this, but um, honestly, um, I feel like like every Fast and the Furious movie would be improved by this. Um, I have yes. this like theory that for modern like current movie watchers, the Fast and the Furious is like the closest thing that we have to Yakuza genre in that it is just like. Because a lot of these films, there'll be, like, many, many sequels as well. Um, Like, you know, we watched Red Peony Gambler 3, and often you don't need to know the context to, like, jump into one of them. They're going to, like, fill you in on who characters are. uh, And ostensibly, it's a movie about action, but mostly it's a movie about, like, men's feeling for each other. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I just... I If... Fast and the Furious movies leaned even heavier into Yakuza Ega stuff um, and just like really did like, yeah, they're going to sing a song as they go to the final confrontation about themselves. Um, Those would be fucking incredible movies. (laughs) So for people who don't know, I'm married to someone named Nora Blake. Uh, I love her very much. Wait, Um, you're married? We are. And a thing that she is off, off, fond of saying is that Star Wars uh, 1977 is not just one perfect movie, but nine perfect movies, because George Lucas only makes it more perfect every time he uh, does a special edition. <laughs> um, and I would just like to posit that if George wants to come back and have a song and dance number when um, when Han kills Greedo... I think that would be lovely. <laughs> yeah. So wait. So Han gets one before he he kills Greedo. Um, also, Luke gets one right before the Death Star run. Yes. Yes. <laughs> those are the t- those are the two. Uh, is that like you get you get um, Ben and Luke coming into town, um, and you know, uh, wretched hives, scum and villainy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and Han is introduced singing a song about, you know, um, the lonesome life of being a, a spice smuggler and, and hounded by uh, Jabba the Hutt. And then he kills um, Greedo. Yeah. And then, yeah, the other the other one you would do would be... No, you wouldn't do Luke um, singing a song before the Death Star run. You would do Han singing that same song as he... <laughs> flew away from um like as he decided to abandon the rebellion he would sing the song and then it would cut away from him and you would get the death star run and then you would get the song coming back in as he decides to save luke that's what you would do (laughs) yeah Um, i think that would be pretty sick (laughs) uh and i think that disney should get george back to do this 
Um, yeah. And I think <laughs> Disney should get fucking 70-year-old Harrison Ford who doesn't <laughs> give a shit anymore to sing. <laughs> that would be fucking incredible. Um, if I had infinite money, I would make that happen. <laughs> Um, next email is from, uh, what tap did I have this open in? Next email is from Crystal. If our world was invaded by the trickster god Loki, which six ornate stairwells characters would you choose to defend us as Earth's mightiest heroes? Well, first, Tetsu the Phoenix. Yeah, you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, uh or you... The, you know, from Red Peony Gambler, she would definitely be in there, too. Yeah. I think Kanada is a shoe-in. Yeah. Um, um, well, that, that gives us three. Are we, can we do both Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Oh, for sure. For sure. So there's four and five. Um, no, I feel like we need, like, something that will mix it up a little bit. And I, I have... I've, I have a few thoughts. Someone was like, it would be fun to have a vampire in the mix, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But the other thing that would be fun <laughs> would be to just have Columbo. <laughs> just have Peter Falk himself, the real-life oh Peter Falk, who, again, with our, within our own world, is a fallen angel. Yes, yes. <laughs> so our, our Avengers team is Tetsu the Phoenix from Tokyo Drifter, Kaneda from Akira... Um, um, the the or, the main lady from Red Peony Gambler Three, yeah. um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, <laughs> and then Peter Falk. <laughs> Just Peter Falk himself. Yes. <laughs> I was looking at Wings of Desire, and I was like, "Oh, it would be fun to like put a character from Wings of Desire," but I just don't know that anyone fits. Thank you, <laughs> thank you from the bottom of my heart. Peter Falk is the only one that makes sense. He's the one like, who knows put... everything that's happening in that movie. He's like the one person who understands everything. Peter Obviously, he's Falk the most powerful. As, as the Nick Fury. <laughs> yeah. Peter Falk going around to all these other characters telling them that the world needs them. <laughs> oh my god. What if I watched Rings of Desire tonight? <laughs> Just Peter Falk going up to all these Yakuza protagonists being like, hmm, you looking for someone? Man or a woman? <laughs> Wings of Desire is the best movie ever made. Oh my god. I love that movie. Um. Um. Wings of Desire is the best movie ever made, and also maybe not my favorite movie we've watched for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, I now think, that we... I th- I think now about Rebels Tokyo... of the Neon God every day. Yeah. Now that we have Tokyo Drifter in the mix, it's a it's far harder for me. But yeah. Um, God, Rebels of the Neon God is also just incredible. We watched some fucking bangers for this podcast. <laughs> um. All right. Final email here from Aiden Clark. Aiden's uh, Aiden's the homie. I love Aiden. Yeah. And also, this email is, like, extremely on topic to the conversation that we had. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
The colors used in Tokyo Drifter are really fucking cool. Different shades that stand out nicely in color, but might not be as striking in the, if the same scene was shot in black and white. Then a year later, Suzuki Seijun uh, made Branded to Kill in black and white, and it looks equally as sick. Are there any other directors who made films in color and in black and white uh, that you find visually striking, especially if they use those color profiles in interesting ways? Um... Also, which movie would you like to see an indulgent black and white artsy rendition of? Uh, a la Fairy Road, Logan, Parasite. I have a, I have a funny... Um, they did a black and white version of Logan? Yeah, I don't... Dude, okay. <laughs> um, I haven't seen Logan. Logan seems like the one like recent superhero movie that I, w- I should check out, maybe. But anyway. Uh, I have a funny story to answer the second question but we should i want to answer the like yeah directors who did films in both color and black and white um the um, the first one that hopped that like jumped in my mind is um dyer cowrie because so his third film um i just don't think is good it was the one that he made in the u.s um i i own it but i'm not a big fan of it um but his, his first few films, his first one was Noi Albanoi, which you and I watched. Um, and it's just, you know, using color to be really visually striking um, throughout that movie. Uh, and then his second film, uh, Vox Numenisker, which I've talked about previously on this podcast, is almost entirely in black and white. They're, they're, uh, it, it somewhat plays with that, but does it in interesting ways. So... Um, that's the first one that jumps to my mind here. Um, I so I haven't seen any of his color films, but like Kurosawa is an obvious choice, you know. Yeah. Uh, like too obvious, I feel maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel so. I my mind went to went to Fritz Lang, um, and I have only seen M, but I feel like. The way that he makes movies probably would cross over well into color, and I I don't know if he did any color movies, but um, would be interested to see, um, yeah, what he did with that. Um, yeah, he's very good with. I mean, a lot of um, especially like German expressionism was just extremely good with black and white and like the the play mm-hmm. of light and shadow. So. Um, um, you know, I was, I was gonna say, I was gonna say Ishiro Honda, much as I adore the 60s and 70s, uh, Godzilla movies, I, I think saying that they make, like, the same sort of dynamic use of color that, uh, Gojira makes, um, I, I, I don't think that's true. I think uh the the first Godzilla movie the black and like he uses black and white a lot better than I think he uses color for for most of it there are there are moments where I think he uses color really well um Ishiro Honda's like great strength is like that the movies get fucking made you know um yeah and and not necessarily the sort of visual feast that like terror of mechagodzilla is i i think i think godzilla versus hedora is the one that gets closest to like damn he's like really going for something visually here um so 
What else? What else? What else? Um, what? I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of directors who use black and white and color in different movies. Because, like, an obvious pull for me would be Cleo from 5 to 7, which has, like, one scene in color. Um, and yeah. it's remarkable that, like, you know, uh, Varda, like, that scene looks fucking incredible. But, um, you know, um, that's in the same movie and it feels like cheating as an answer to this question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, I think, um, like, Stalker, I believe, does black and white and then color. Um, like, as they get further into the zone, I think it switches to color. Um, that's a, a pretty good... I like, should watch some Tarkovsky. I've never seen any Tarkovsky. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, Bergman, to, you know, Bergman. like, Berg- Persona uses black and white really, really well. Um, and then some of his color films are, are also yeah. pretty good. Although, to- I feel like I, I feel like he handles black and white a little bit better, um, unless mm-hmm. I'm misremembering some stuff, but... Um, mm-hmm. I'm mainly thinking of Fanny and Alexander right now, even though I know he has other... I'm pretty sure yeah. it's other color. Um, trying to think. There was one that I just hit on and I lost it again. Oh, Hitchcock. Hitchcock is like a pretty obvious pull here. Um, yeah. I, as a teen, I was really into Hitchcock. As an adult, um, I'm a little less into Hitchcock. But I, I, I don't think it can be overstated. Like, I think he's like a, as far as like a sort of like technician almost of like, the movies are just like, like he just has a very like, he makes the movies a certain fucking way. He knows what he's good at. He knows what he's not good at. um, And he plays to his strengths really well. And like, the movies just look fucking good. Like, Rear Window is one of the most beautiful color movies ever made, and, um, you know, I don't even like Psycho, but, like, it looks great, (laughs) you know? Um, Yeah. And then there's also, you know, a lot of very, like, very workman sort of black and white movies he did, like, I think Strangers, I don't think Strangers on a Train, like, uses black and white in some unique and fascinating way, but I think Strangers on a Train is a good fucking movie, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. And, and I don't, I really don't like Vertigo. I really dislike Vertigo, but it's, it's a good looking movie, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, um, movies would be fun to see an indulgent black and white artsy rendition of. So, um, when I was a teen, there was an article I remember going around about, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark is better in black and white. <laughs> um, and I, do, I, I don't know that I could track, track this article down, but basically there was this article that went around that advocated, like, you should pull up Raiders of the Lost Ark in your fucking, you know, on your laptop or whatever, and just turn the saturation down and the contrast up a bit and just watch um raiders of the lost ark in black and white and then i remember 
shortly after that, I want to say Devin Faraci wrote a fucking listicle of um about this, you know, about like here are like six other movies you should do this with. So that I watched like Halloween um 1978 in black and white once um yeah uh, i was gonna say i feel like horror is a big one here for me where where like i think a lot of horror films it'd be fun to do like the artsy black and white one because horror as a genre remains one of the ones where i think even in color like um light and shadow come up a lot um it's just like a, a way of creating like you know and I don't know if some of it is just the lineage of like horror really go- goes back to like silent black and white films, but um, and also some of it is just that like having really dramatic shadows can be good for horror. So, uh, but like The Hunger would be like it's practically a black and white film already. <laughs> we talked about this in that episode, but like it uses color and it uses color well, but also so much of what makes that film striking is just like the light and the darkness and, and not really the colors. Right. Um, and I, I, I think, I think that like going around and like opening up VLC and turning down the saturation is like a very silly thing that I did as a kid. Yeah. Um, but I do, I am generally in support of like filmmakers, um, putting out these sorts of black and white versions. Cause like, like that Fury Road black and white version does look good because, you know, um George Miller knows what the fuck he's doing and he specifically like redid the movie um in black and white, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um so I really I really want to see that Snyder cut black and white version. I think it would suck. I think it would suck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'd be interested in seeing it. Um superheroes are to me about primary colors um but also the experience of watching the snyder cut for me was man this guy doesn't like any of the things about superheroes that i like and i'm still really drawn into this movie (laughs) um i still really like snyder cut despite it being sort of like oppositional to everything i like in cinema and in superheroes so um i kind of want to see that black and white snyder cut I I think it would be weird. Um, As far as, like, movies that I would want to see in black and white, like, yeah, horror is, like, the obvious thing. Like, a a lot of horror movies, I think, would work here. Um, I would not want to watch a black and white Tokyo Drifter. No. (laughs) No, 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 no. Um... I almost I was scrolling through my letterbox and I saw Inherent Vice and I was like Inherent Vice and then I was like no because I think Inherent Vice is about you know 70s and the sort of like Technicolor look of um, yeah of that movie is sort of the point you know what um I would watch a black and white version of Holy Motors um Holy Motors is a good fucking movie and I would watch a black and white version of that um because I also trust that Leo Carre would do something interesting with it. So, yeah, um, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I was just, I, I had another thought, which was, um, Akira, and it, it 
like it's not just like black and white where they're doing like mm, it's not it's not where they're just desaturating this. but where they're like actually doing it with like the um oh i'm to- totally drawing a blank the the like screen tones where it's like literally like the various dots of like gray and things like having mm-hmm. it be like screen toned manga yes black and white uh, akira would be incredible i think yeah, I I would love to see a movie that is animated in the way that like black and white comics look, you know? Yeah. Um I would love to see a uh like a Dororo anime um that like actually does Tezuka's style. Um Yeah. Tezuka specifically would be such a weird get for this because like so many black and white comic artists use like gray tones you know um yeah tezuka uses fucking black and white it is either 100 percent saturation or zero percent saturation yeah and i think doing in uh like a, a doro anime that is doing that sounds fucking fascinating <laughs> yeah um and I, I I think this exists as the Astro Boy anime, but like I'm not gonna watch the Astro Boy anime. I'm sorry that it's old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um. Yeah, that that's my final thought. I think that would be great. Yeah, and and a, a version of Akira that looks like the manga looks would be fucking great. Um. So yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. Next time in the mood for love. Monkarai. Uh you know who's in the mood for love? Um Okakoro. Because <laughs> they're Okakoro, real. Yeah, Okakoro is real. Hey, did you stop recording? I haven't. You can follow me at Foxman Me on Twitter. You can follow Autumn at uh Autumnal underscore coffee. Um Go check out our podcast. You know what it is. Bye.
Bella Lugos is dead. 